Well, welcome. Glad you're here tonight. We are right in the middle of an excellent study begun last week by uh, Don Bowman on anthropology. And we're going to go ahead and continue in the same vein of thinking in terms of uh, speaking a little bit more, diving a little deeper on the nature of man and uh, the fall the fall and the sin nature. We'll look at imputed guilt. Um, we're going to look at a couple of other things related to that. And I trust it will be an, uh, a good study. If you've never studied the doctrine of sin, I just want to warn you that the Scripture tells us that it, it requires grace to be able to receive and understand what we're about to hear tonight. Uh, this is not an easy topic because it's going to offend, it naturally does, to look someone in the eye and say, you are, in fact, a sinner in the grain of your being, in the very depths of your nature. And uh, that certainly is an offensive statement today. It's almost like, do we even have the category called sin anymore? Modern man has seemingly done away with sin entirely. And uh, we want to make sure that we don't fall into the, the, the cultural thinking regarding sin. So I just, uh, these are, almost everybody's got them as I'm looking around here. I do encourage that if you have a question along the way, if you want to just hang on to those questions, we will have times to answer those um, later on in the three times we'll be together. This time will be our beginning, and then we'll set up a, quite a bit of introduction here, but I'm sure you'll have questions regarding the nature of sin, and uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating study. Mardiology is, uh, I'll be honest with you, I feel like I, I did draw the short straw when it came to which doctrine I get to teach. Uh, this is not one of my favorite ones, but it does. it is nonetheless an essential one because it relates to every other doctrine. Every single other doctrine is deeply connected and inter- interrelated with this one. And uh, quite honestly, what you, what you understand about sin is going to impact how you understand the doctrine of the Father, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the church. Uh, the doctrine of sin is so, uh, so interrelated, so intermingled with all of that, it's important to have a clarity on understanding what does it mean, what is the doctrine of sin. We call it homardiology. It just comes from the Greek word hamartia, which is, uh, in, in essence, it's the, cert, it's the branch of Christian theology treating the doctrine of sin. And so, just give you a quick overview of the plan, how we're going to plan to use our time in the next couple of sessions. Um, first of all, tonight's overview, we're going to look at the nature of sin. I want to look at some, what I call, defections from the doctrine of homardiology. Over this course of church history, and even into the modern day, uh, the, the idea of sin has been changed in the cultural conception, in the, in the way the church has talked about it. So, in fact, I would suggest that there has probably never been a greater misunderstanding of, the, of sin to, than, than there is today. So we want to understand why is there so much defection, so many deviances from the, from the understanding of sin today. We're also going to look at some homardiological distinctions. What I think this, the, the role, the distinct role that homardiology plays in systematic theology. And then we're going to look at a definition. I think it's good to kind of land on a solid definition of what we are meaning when we talk about sin. And then we'll look at its centrality in Scripture. And we'll look at a concordance of sin. By that, what I mean is we're going to look at some sin language. There's no less than at least two dozen different words used in the Hebrew and Greek that are all sin-related terms that uh, give us a very robust and very 
an, uh, a very large spectrum of understanding about what sin is and how it can shape up and form up and stage itself up in our, in our lives. And then we'll look at the last number three there is the characterization of sin in Scripture, which is just going to look at a couple of, um, form up that, that definition for us. And then the next two weeks after that, we're going to take a tour through church history and through the Scriptures as we begin to build on this doctrine. I, trust me, this is, this is going to be an exciting time to study this. It's going to be very informative. It's going to be very helpful. It's going to be very spiritually nurture, nourishing to you as well. I, I want you to understand t- next week when we get together, we're going to do the origin of sin. We've been through Genesis. That's familiar ground for us in a lot of ways. We just came through a large summer series on that. So I'm not going to repeat the same things you've heard. I'm going to try to synthesize and put things together and show you the arc that, uh, of narrative that passes through there and try to bring the, the, the ends together so that it all cohesively ties together and understanding for you. Uh, we're going to look at the, um, not only the origin of sin, we'll look at the doctrinal of original sin. What is original sin? And if you were pressed for a definition of that, can you, can you clarify that? Can you have a, clarity, uh, a clear definition of that in your own mind? And so we'll look at the doctrine of original sin. We're going to look at the extent of sin, this idea that we often call total depravity, and what is, in, what is implied by that, what does the scripture teach us about that. And then we'll conclude the study with talking about the believer in sin. Um, what does the scripture tell us about the dynamic of a believer who's caught in sin? All right, along the way we'll have some Q&A, possibly if there's time at the end we'll talk about what's the unpardonable sin, what's the sin unto death. The good old question, does God really hate just the sin? What about the sinner? What about the generational sins? What about um, why did God ordain the fall in the first place? And such questions as that. Uh, so we'll have opportunity to hopefully look at those together. And, uh, but tonight, our, our mission is clear. The nature of sin is what we want to get into. Okay? So if, if you have a handout there, we're going to dive right into the defections portion. Harmardiological uh, heretics. And uh, by that I mean it's important to understand that homoriology is an important doctrine because most Christians don't have a consistent or coherent theology, especially when it comes to the doctrine of sin. It appears that most people have not reconciled their ideas to Scripture or, what, uh, or to the holy nature of God or what it means to have a totally corrupt human heart. Every two years or so, um, I was reading a study by... Uh, a partnership with Ligonier and Lifeway Research that publishes what's called the State of Theology. It's a survey of American Christians and their beliefs about a wide spectrum of uh, issues related to theological, social, and moral subjects. And the results of this survey are basically an encapsulation of the beliefs of what American Christians believe. And this every year, it's sort of shocking to see how many of those beliefs are seriously defective, especially in relation to the view on sin. A couple of these things we should look at, um, a couple of these questions are offered up, and then uh, respondents give their answers. And it's fascinating to see the responses, how they actually show, how they actually demonstrate a, a real serious deviation in idea of sin here. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation was one of the questions this year, uh, actually in 2022. Oh, this is from the 2016 one. This is from the 2016 one. And it's interesting because um, what actually happened was uh, about 11% uh, um, agreed strongly with that idea. 8% agreed somewhat. 12 disagreed somewhat. 
62% disagreed strongly, 7% were not sure. And when you accumulate that, aggregate that all together, it shows that about 8 out of 10 people, 8 out of 10 respondents to the survey have responded they disagree with the idea that small sins are uh, chargeable in eternal damnation by God. And when you, when, you, when you look at that statistic, you'll notice that about 80% super, of a supermajority of American respondents in this survey have an incorrect view about sin. Um, that sin is not considered serious anymore. Well, it, it seems like you wouldn't have to read very far into your Bible, maybe page 2 or 3 in, your, in, in our case, where we might see a small sin that actually did incur an eternal consequence. Uh, Adam and Eve's sin was a what would appear to be rather small, but nonetheless universal and cosmological and uh, uh, forever uh, generational, uh, impactful on their on the on the consequences of that sin. Um, Adam's one trespass brought a condemnation upon the whole race. Galatians three ten says, "For as many as were of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law." to perform them. So scripture tells us that, yes, even small sins are liable for judgment. Um, why do you think there's some reasons? Why, why do you think people don't take sin seriously anymore? Why do you think that that's a potential, well, that's just the state of affairs in our culture today? Well, I, 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 uh, a long time ago, I picked up a book called The Vanishing Conscience by John MacArthur. Excellent book. In the first chapter, he talks about Whatever happened to sin, this idea of that there is evil in us, and that, that we do things that, are, um, of, that violate the law of God. Well, it seems that modern psychology has seemingly eradicated this concept from guilt, of guilt from every sector of life. What we used to call sin has been explained by the way as either an illness or an injustice done against us. In fact, most people today don't think that our basic problem is that we are sinners, Rather, most people believe that we act out badly because we were sinned against. Uh, we are victims, rather. We are mistreated, and that's why we act out in evil ways. Evil can't come from within us, after all. Um, it must, therefore, be sourced in our environment or our upbringing or our background or something that's happened to us. And so, therefore, we shouldn't be held liable for what we do. All of our actions are accounted for because they are caused by someone or something else. And that has been taught for at least 50 years in this country um, to, to blame shift, to, to change up the terminology and the, the metrics by which we understand guilt and sin. Um, number two, we might see that um, all guidelines are con- considered arbitrary. Society has removed the guidelines that instructed the, the conscience. We no longer have to worry about, um, uh, we, have a, we have a shifting standard for what's right and what's wrong now. Almost everyone is thoroughly postmodern in their thinking today, and they're committed to this concept of moral relativism. Everybody's going to do what's right in their own eyes. Morality's in the eyes of the beholder, and most, most people don't consider morality absolute. And when your standard is constantly changing and morality is situationally contingent, then right and wrong is are categories that are not useful to a modern person anymore, or so they say. Also, there's this problem, I think, another reason why people don't take sin seriously is that most people guard the concept that they are innately good, or at least basically good. 
small infractions against uh, uh, small infractions or small sins are easily dismissed because we tend to think of ourselves as generally pure in heart. We have good motives after all, and you know we might occasionally make mistakes or we'll use other language to cover it up, like we'll say we've made missteps or mistakes or unintentional or unfortunate lapses of character, but we would never call ourselves sinful. In fact, Psalm 36, 2 tells us that for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. We flatter ourselves, the Bible says, when we consider ourselves to be good. Um, several other passages, Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motives. You see, the Lord is... His, his review of our lives goes beyond sinful acts and looks in, inward into what's motivating the sinful act, what is actually it, at stake in the heart and deep into the nature of man. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Proverbs 26, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. And so we see that even though everyone thinks themselves to be good, this is, this is diminishing the idea of sin. Sin is seen only in those extreme cases or those more aggravated situations where sin is just so reprehensible that even the modern conscience can't abide it. Some might say that uh, another reason why sin is um, not seeing so, seeming so uh, serious these days is that all are, have heard that God is invariably merciful and will surely forgive them on no grounds whatsoever, just simply because he's a nice guy. Um, they know that the true God, they don't really know the true God of the Bible. Instead, they fashion a God who perverts justice and doesn't really condemn evil. They, share, they don't share God's uh, view of, of their sin because they don't really know that God. In Psalm 50, verse 16, it says, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? God speaking says, for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. And when you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose and evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. Wow. That's the true attitude of God towards sin. And if we knew God, our hearts would reflect the same attitude toward our own sin. So sin is not considered serious anymore amongst the vast majority of American Christians. Um. We have also noticed that this question was asked on that same study. People have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. This is a question related to the depravity of man. Does man, does the Bible teach that man may turn to God whenever he wills to do so? Does man have the ability to change his own sinful heart and change the course of his life? And can he do that on his own initiative? apart from the grant of God's grace. Can a man do this on his own initiative? Well, according to the study, 
it appears that 79% of the respondents think that man does have that ability to turn to God of his own accord. And so it's clear that despite the scriptures that would teach otherwise, they, uh, that people generally have a bad understanding or misunderstanding of the extent to which sin enslaves our soul, enslaves our, our heart, and our nature holds us in bondage. We simply can't break the bondage of our sin nature and turn ourselves to God without God's initiating work of grace that transforms our nature. In fact, what we'll get into next week, we'll talk about how this sort of this issue came to the fore in the 5th century during church history uh, by a man named Pelagius, a British monk who taught that human nature was unimpaired by Adam's fall and that man retained the capacity to please God in his own nature. He denied original sin and said that neither guilt nor corruption was inherited by Adam. In fact, according to Pelagius, humans have the ability to overcome their sin always through their free will. And they have a power of autonomous self-determination. Pelagius' theories on the freedom of the will were contested by Augustine's biblical arguments from Romans. And Augustine would would say... In prayer, he'd say, Lord, give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. Maybe you've heard that someone say that before. Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. It's a prayer acknowledging that man has nothing to offer God at all. God commands what he wills from his people. And what he requires of us, he gives grace to perform those things. This is a biblical uh, teaching throughout throughout the book of Romans. We've seen it several times in pastors' expositional study, but we'll look more in depth at it next week when we talk about original sin. But man is totally depraved. He's not able to do any spiritual good with relation to his own renewal, his own need for salvation, his, uh, that the work of God that must be done in us for salvation is his work from start to finish, from beginning to end. It's a work of divine grace. And the teachings of Pelagianism were condemned as heresy. And while they were condemned as heresy in the, in the 5th century, they still remain today lodged deeply into the, the natural theology of people who are in pews in churches all over our country, as is evidenced by answering of this question. Other questions might involve, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Another question that appeared on the state of theology exam. Everyone is born innocent in the, in the eyes of God. Does Scripture teach that man has an innate sin nature from birth? Scripture does indeed teach that. From Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. From the moments of his conception, he knew he was already a sinner. Now, this idea doesn't sort of register very well at all. Um, In fact, it appears that 7 out of 10 who were respondent to this survey denied the biblical concept of original sin. When narrowed down to just the evangelical group who answered this, 65% agreed with it. So not much difference between evangelicals and other Christians. In fact, nearly two-thirds of evangelicals believe that we enter into this life without original sin. That's That's a staggering idea. It's just showing that most people don't understand the true depravity of the human heart. Another question, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. And this response was quite staggering. You would expect evangelicals have been taught very well on this idea that no one is good by nature. 
And yet here we see 55% of evangelicals signed on to the sentiment. Our fundamental problem isn't that we're just careless or ignorant, but the Bible says that our problem with sin isn't that we're just generally good people who mess up once in a while, but that our problem with sin goes deeply into our core. We're not spiritually neutral. We are not capable of either good or evil. The Bible says there is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth good. No, not even one. And while these opinions are intensely believed and defended, as we can see by the large amounts of intensity as far as strong agreement with these ideas, they are nonetheless unbiblical and deceptive. And wherever the Bible is preached, the doctrine of sin is explained, and it exposes these deep-seated beliefs that we have about ourselves and the fundamental nature we have of us as human beings. And it's no wonder that biblical teaching about sin has been ignored, it's out of vogue, for basically it's not really been taught intensively in many churches for a long time, 40 or 50 years perhaps even. Entire congregations have now been raised up that have no understanding of the doctrines of original sin, the total depravity of man, um, sin nature, the general, um, the general constitution of man, how he was, how he's put together, his fall, the impacts of the fall, and such things as that. Instead, when these things are taught, it usually elicits a powerful reaction of hostility and an animosity, shock and horror to folks who hear this for the first time. So, I think that when you see this, you see there's a serious defection from homardiology, biblical homardiology. And not only that, I think there are five distinct honors that this doctrine carries with it uh, relative to the other doctrines of, of systematic theology. Number one, I think that it is indeed the most despised Christian doctrine. Um, that is to say, it's hated by religious people, it's hated by rebellious people, and it's hated by righteous people, all alike. First, we see it's hated by rebellious people. And we see this ex- exemplified in the, in, in the state when Jesus was walking the earth. Of course, he, um, he, he said this in John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil is not indifferent, it's not neutral, it's not somewhat on the fence or someone undecided about, about Christ. They are intensely hostile. They are hated. They hate, I mean, sorry, they hate the light. Uh, neither do they come to the light for fear that the, their deeds would be exposed. Other verses, Jesus spoke um, to the disciples and warned them. He says, listen, disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. It hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. When the doctrine of sin is expounded and preached, as Jesus did, it elicits the ire and hostility and rancor of people who hear it, as it did with Jesus. Other passages involve Proverbs 1, 28 and 29. God speaking there, he says, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So here we have an example of this hostility, this hatred towards the, the general grace, the common grace of God to call, and the general call of God, and uh, the giving of knowledge. So you see that. 
Again, another place. For consider him, the writer of Hebrews says, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not, you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so we see that this Christian doctrine is hated, indeed, by rebellious people. It's also hated by righteous people. That is, people who feel themselves to be self-righteous, to be rather generally good people. Um, We see this especially in Jesus' interactions, his many interactions with the Pharisees, who thought themselves to be rather superior to others around them. And uh, Jesus looked them looked back at them on one occasion and said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. He tells them flat out that they just have no shot at entering in the kingdom, this kingdom which they had pinned all of their hopes upon based on their righteous and moral behavior. And this is why they plotted against him. This is why he was ultimately um, uh, betrayed and killed because of these types of pre- this type of preaching. He was hated by religious people. And so will anyone who teaches this doctrine. They will be hated by even the, the most religious among us. This is, it's actually ironic how much, inter- how much con- contest and how much conflict was brought about by Jesus with religious people. Not just Jesus, but others as well. And, and, um, there's a couple other. Uh, you look at Isaiah chapter 53 and the, the explanation of how we esteemed him not. We looked at him. Uh, we beheld him, we saw him as he, one who was cast off by God, smitten by God, afflicted. When they saw the, the suffering servant, Jesus, they, they did not account him to be one who was righteous. They accounted him instead to be one who was cursed of God. That was the religious perspective on Jesus. And, those who pre- and, and all those who preached sin, all the prophets who came into the, um, Israel and preached about the covenant of God being broken and being transgressed, all of them, or many of them, were mistreated. Almost some of them were killed, and uh, all of them were treated with great hatred. So I think it's not only the most, um, it is the most despised doctrine. I also think, moving along here quickly, um, it was also, pardon me, I got ahead of myself a little, it is the most denied doctrine. The most denied Christian doctrine. If you happen to know a little something about other, other religions in the world, it'll start to stand out almost immediately to you. Just a little research to find out just how unusual the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of homardiology, are so unique and so profound and so, so um, altogether unlike anything else that is present among the world's religions. Mormons do not believe in original sin. They believe that men are born and have a, nat- a sin nature that starts to manifest itself later in life. But generally, men are born. They do not inherit any guilt or any culpability from Adam's sin at all. Uh, they, that's one of the cardinal beliefs of Mormonism. They believe that men will be punished only for their own sins, not for Adam's transgressions. They bear no We bear no responsibility for that. And they deny what's called imputed sin, which we'll talk about next week. They believe sin is something that you commit, not something that you are born with. And they believe that babies are are born spiritually innocent and that they do not have a sin nature. Um, Human beings, therefore, are not inherently evil. And so this is something that 
comes at sharp contrast with the biblical teaching of human sin. Judaism is also another one that does not teach in a sin nature. Uh, they look at Genesis chapter 1. Jews will look at Genesis chapter 1. They'll see men made in the image of God. That, that's our primary defining characteristic, that made, cre- as creatures made in the image of God, we have inherent goodness, and that is our true nature, that somehow Adam's fall, while it did introduce negativity and evil into the world system, it did not attach itself to our nature. Uh, therefore, they deny hum- original sin and Humans come into this world not burdened by the sin of their ancestors. They come in, rather, uh, with an inherent capability of attaining goodness. And they have sin classified in many varieties and types and, and, and degrees. There's a, big, a large taxonomy of sin and how it, how, it, uh, how it affects. There are unintentional sins, sins committed in ignorance. There are sins um, that, are, that are considered worse than others. Sins between people are often considered more severe than sins against God. And so Judaism doesn't subscribe to the teaching of the the Bible, Old Testament and New, of original sin and sin nature. Uh, Islam also denies the fall of man. Islam says that Adam's fall was his mistake alone and had no extended serious consequences to the rest of humanity. In fact, in in the Quran, it says that Whatever wrong any human being commits, rest upon himself alone. No bearer of burdens shall be made to bear another's burden. And so it's strictly understood that every person stands or falls on his own merit in the, in the system of Islam. It denies a sin nature. In Islam, sin is just an act. It does not extend it to their motives or to the state of their being. So dis- there are distinctions between major and minor sins. In Islam, so this is very unusual when we start to see these scriptural teachings about original sin. Uh, you may have understood karma. You've heard of karma, which is held by Hinduism and Buddhism and the Jainism. And, um, karma is the theory of cause and effect, where humans are held accountable for their good deeds of good and evil. Um, this is attractive. Even I've heard sometimes Christians will say that karma is essentially the idea of sin, and, and it really isn't. There are so many distinctions and so many differences between karma and the doctrine of sin. Um, one of those things is that karma is not controlled by any deity. It's just a, um, a principle of the universe basing, based on your own choices. You manipulate the forces of the universe by your own choice. Karma is related to the doctrine of the transmigration of the soul or reincarnation, and what we are today is because of what we, we sinned in another existence, so they would say. But there has, been, has to be some explanation for why we, why we are all sinful, why we all commit sin without exception. But there has to be some reason for that. Karma is the point, is the obvious explanation for this. Um, because we come into this, this life in a degraded condition, there must be some sin, some original sin. Now, they're trying to wrestle with things that are observable and seen, but they've got the wrong solution. Since people don't sin as little babies, they must, be, have, must have sinned from some previous existence. So in their view, humans are not born innocent, but the works of their past actions of an individual are transferred with them from a previous lifetime to follow them into the future. Uh, of course, this only projects the problem of original sin further into the past. Where did that original sin come from? Why are the... Um, they're trying to deal with the same questions that the scripture answers. 
where does sin come from? Why is everything in this world broken? Why am I unable to achieve perfection? What, why do I sin? How do I cover and atone for that sin? And of course, Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism kind of vacillates on this idea of original sin. Uh, historically, they affirmed an, August, an Augustinian viewpoint, which we'll talk about tomorrow, uh, next week. But then they gradually modified their view to a more semi-Pelagian view, a, a view that sort of said that sin only weakened us. It didn't really debilitate us. It did not really kill us. It did not slay us. It did not put us to death spiritually. Um, so they have mortal, humans are mortal, they would say. They're subject to death. Yes, humans cannot save themselves and need assistance from divine's grace. That is to say, God kind of infuses a little righteousness along to help them to return to a state of innocence. They would believe in a, a situation, they believe in infant baptism, and in the act of the infant, bapti- ba- ba- infant being baptized, that removes original sin and restores the human child back to the state that Adam would have been in and restores to him a state of grace. While he might still have the tendency towards sin later, he at least has got a fresh start, removing um, all the original sin there. So they bifurcate on the nature of original sin. Um, They're not the same with the biblical doctrine. And so you'll see that this is a distinct doctrine. It's distinct in, among the religion, the world's religions and philosophies. It's unique in its account of the human condition. It's unique on the account of sin's, of, of sin's remedy. Other systems present man as only slightly impaired. He's only somewhat marginally damaged. Otherwise, he's competent to free himself from his own sin and his own constraints. He can do self-atoning works. He can do law-keeping. He can make better choices. Perhaps with a little help from God or religion or some other inspiring figure, he can escape sin's hold on his nature, that we can improve ourselves, that we can remake ourselves, reinvent ourselves anytime in any way we would like. And so many buy into the self-help and the self-sufficient delusion um, that says that we can improve ourselves and get away from our own pollution of our souls. However, the Bible says that man is thoroughly corrupt, unable, and unwilling to turn to God in repentance and without power to escape his own fallen nature. So it is one of the most distinctive doctrines. It's definitely a downplayed doctrine because I believe the offensiveness of sin, the offense that it creates to our own self-perception. We can, no one likes to think of themselves as inherently bad or evil. Such thoughts produce these uncomfortable feelings of shame, guilt, and despair, and hopelessness. And in today's world, if there is a sin, it's to make people feel guilty, make people feel shameful. If you do that, you are the one who's creating a greater sin than whatever else might have taken place. So there's an offense to the society has said that humankind is generally noble and impressive. We should celebrate the greatness of man and his achievements. So therefore, any idea that man would be appraised accurately in his sin tendencies, that sounds like obscenity in, 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 the, human, in, the, in the culture that we live in today. It's an offense to secular psychology because secular psychology has taught us to blame all of our actions on some other source our environment, or upbringing, some other traumatic experience, some injustice inflicted upon us, 
very few of our own actions seem to fall into the category of personal responsibility anymore. And so, of course, it's downplayed. It offends our sacred privacy. And by that, I mean it's just it's, uh, to, the inside of a person today is considered to be the most sacred space you could consider. You ask someone about what they think and what they believe in, in their heart, and it is like probing the inner machinations and contemplations of their heart. It's deeply personal. It's very intrusive, especially if you try to do it without an invitation to do so. You're going to be thought to be judgmental. You're going to be thought to have, um, to have to question people's motivations and attitudes and feelings and reason. You're breaching individual privacy on what goes on inside the mind and heart of someone. And so most people don't think of that as being very, um, very helpful. So it gets downplayed. Um, cool. So it's not only downplayed, it's lastly here, I think it's one of the most debated doctrines as well. It's, sin has been debated throughout church history in several different times, several different particular periods and events. Um, Don mentioned the traditionism and the creationism idea of how we inherit our souls or how we, how we receive our souls. How does God put our souls with our bodies at birth? Uh, the question, one of the key questions in that is how can God create souls initially if they're already, when they're, when they're put together with the human body, they are already tainted with sin. Does God create fresh, human, sinful souls? Uh, of course, that creates a major problem. That was debated in the doctrine of sin's transmission. There's also the debate over sin's atonement. There's been lots of ideas about what does the atonement really mean? Um, whether it's a penal substitution atonement, which I think the scripture teaches, or some other version of that. It was debated in sin's impact upon human freedom. The idea of human freedom has constantly been one of the major pieces of evidence that tried to um, undermine or weaken the idea of the total depravity of sin. And it, was, it keeps propping up and the Pelagianism and Augustinianism conflict, the Arminian-Calvinism debate, Molinism and Calvinism, other debates about human freedom. Um, Socinianism, too, as well, would just repackage Pelagianism later. And uh, same, same basic arguments keep coming back. Um, it was debated sins in the present, in the, sin's presence in the believer's life. Sin gets debated there. Sanctification. Which model of sanctification are you going to go with? The Catholic model, which involves you working your way um, into grace? Or the Wesleyanism, the Keswickism, the Pentecostalism, the Schaeferian, the Reformed views? These are all different debates that rage about the doctrine of sin. And so we see that not only does all of these things are true about sin, but it's important to recognize that that's what makes sin so key and so important to our understanding. If we, have to, we have to really understand and accept what Scripture has taught us about this if we're going to have um, clarity in the other areas of our doctrine. So it is indeed a central, a central um, role in our theology, homariological centrality. Sin is pervasive in the role of Scripture and throughout all Scripture. Out of the Bible's 1,189 chapters, only four chapters are without any mention of sin um, or sinners. And that would be Genesis 1 and 2 and the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. They stand alone as unique chapters 
that rehearse the creation of before sin and the new heaven and the new earth, which will never be infected by sin. So, as you can see, between those two, those two bookends, the scripture has, there's, barely goes a page in your Bible or a verse in your Bible sometimes where it doesn't even mention the existence of sin and its impact. The doctrine of sin is important. It affects and has affected all other doctrines. Um, uh, it's indispensable in our understanding of the true gospel. You, can, you will never understand the gospel if you don't first understand the, the pathology of our problem. Why is our problem so, so challenging? Um, is it, uh, if man is just able to remedy his own condition, he doesn't need a savior. He just needs perhaps a little coaching, a little help, a little encouragement, maybe a little life coach along the way uh, to kind of keep him going. Or is his nature so, so damaged, so, disre- so beyond repair, is he indeed dead in sins, trespasses in sins, as Ephesians chapter 2, 1 would say, and other passages like that. And if so, the, the problem is intensely more severe than we initially, originally are inclined to think of it. Um, John Davis said in his um, book, Regeneration in the Old Testament, he said, the very nature of the cure of sin is grounded in the nature of the disease of sin. Is sin truly as devastating as it really would seem? And if that is, we would need to understand sin and its remedy for our problem. Jonathan Edwards said, Homariology is that great important doctrine. I look on the doctrines as of great importance, for if the case be such indeed that all mankind are by nature in a state of total ruin, then doubtless the great salvation by Christ stands in direct relation to this ruin as the remedy to the disease. And the whole gospel of the doctrine of salvation must oppose it. And all real belief or true notion of the gospel must be built upon it. So that sets it up as very foundational to the rest of the understanding of these doctrines. And so as we move on along here, we get into the idea of the concordance of martyology here. And like I said, this is a rich study. If you wanted to spend several hours of doing this, it would be a really profitable study to do that to look at the different language and different wording that associate, is associated with sin, to see how broad and how wide this idea is affect, affects our human nature. Ignorance is one example. The idea of ignorance is presented throughout the scriptures to, um, to describe our sin. In Romans chapter 1, verse 13, let's take a moment and just tear our Bibles there. Pastor's been in the book of Romans several for several weeks now, several months. <laughs> and look at Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. That word unaware is a Greek word for ag- it's agnoeo. It uh, has the idea of to be unaware or, or ignorant, to, have, to be uh, unassuming to be without recognition, okay? He says, I would not have you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have prevented you so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, also even among, as among the rest of the Gentiles. This idea of being unaware is used sometimes in cases like this, where it seems innocent and it seems uh, there's no sin implied in what's being done here. But sometimes this word will be used in other, other occasions where... Um, 
It implies that unaware or ignorance is indeed a culpable sin. Go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look over here at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 9. I'm going to back up a little bit so we get some context here. I guess we'll go back up to verse 2. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in affliction, in hardships and in distresses, in beatings and in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors and in sleeplessness, in hunger and in purity and knowledge and in patience and in kindness in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, but the, by the weapons of the righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known. That word unknown there is the word that uh, agnoia, okay? Agnoeo, which is the word we're using for ignorance here, as well, as well known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, and as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So here again the passage shows that this word can have, have the idea of making, uh, having no knowledge or being without recognition. Sometimes it's clear that this is not a culpable sin. Obviously, no sin is involved in this. But there are times on occasion when this does get used to, re- to, to show sin is involved. I believe that, I think it's First Peter one fourteen. I think that's one example where the same word gets used, but it shows that there is a sinful action that's here. Uh, let's go on over to First Peter. Chapter, we're heading to chapter 1. And verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 14. And it says here, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So Scripture describes our condition before in our former lusts, our former time before we came to Christ as being one in a state of ignorance. That is to say that we had um, a, a condition where we, did not, we were not aware of our sinful state. So, um, key principles regarding... I'm actually going to skip this section here about key principles to understanding regarding culpability... We will probably pick up much of this material in the next section where we talk about um, the original sin. So I'm going to have you just hold on to that section. We will return to it at a later time. But based, I'll, just, I'll just read the principles to you. Some principles that we understand when it comes to uh, culpability. Sometimes people will say God will not hold us culpable or responsible if we're ignorant of his law. That primary to 
being God being able to charge us with wrongdoing is that we had to have first a knowledge of the law to start with. And therefore, those who don't have a knowledge of God's laws or who are, and who are ignorant of those things, those would have no, no, they're not liable for obedience. And so the first principle I state here for you is ignorance of the law is no defense for sin. I, I learned this. I'm going to make a confession to you. This, this Christmas, I was driving home from New York State, and I got pulled over by a cop when a police, uh, in, um, in the middle of Pennsylvania. I did not realize the speed limit had changed. So I was going the normal, time, the normal speed limit, and I got pulled over by the police officer, a very nice fella, came up to my door and says, hey, uh, any reason why you're going this speed? And I said, I just literally did not know the speed limit had changed. You know what? That didn't change his mind about the ticket at all. Just because I was ignorant didn't mean that I actually got off with, with, I didn't get off even with a warning. I don't know. I just, so ignorance of the law is no defense for sin. Obviously, we don't operate by this, but God has placed his law in accessible ways. He has given us the, the benefit of natural revelation. By looking into the created order, we see God as a wise and sovereign creator of all things, that he rules this world in order. And uh, by that, we are uh, made aware of his Godhead and uh, that he has uh, control. So with that, we are, <clears throat> God gives us, some, there are some cases where God does give clemency and discretion in the administration of his justice against sinners. There's an example in Numbers chapter 35 and Deuteronomy 4 and Joshua 20 where God provided cities of refuge for those who might have accidentally committed a sin, as it were, although it's not deemed a sin. For instance, one example in Scripture is a person accidentally kills a man who was not his enemy. He didn't have any malicious intention toward him. Um, he accidentally perhaps killed him on a, on a job site. Uh, something happens, perhaps, uh, and the man has an unfortunate accident, and he's, and he's killed. The man who would be responsible for that would be able to flee to the city of refuge to escape the avenger of blood, and God's law would provide a measure of clemency in that case of an involuntary manslaughter. No sacrifice would have been required because it wouldn't have been considered a sin. Um, it was a sin considered done in ignorance. And so those types of things, God does allow some clemency there for. But generally speaking, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Sin committed unintentionally is still reckless and negligent. And so in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17, it tells us that if a person sins and does any of the things with which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear the punishment. And so... Uh, Third principle here, my ability is not the measure of my responsibility. What about capacity? Another question that people have is, in order for God to expect something from me, he, he has to, there has to be the assumption that I have the power and ability to do it. God cannot expect me to do something that I don't have the capacity to do. It would not be fair if he, if he insisted that would be the case. And yet, when you, uh, the way Pelagius would put this, is he said, if, if, if I ought, then I can. If God has given me a commandment, I, should, I have the ability to fulfill it. God would never command me to do something I cannot do. Um, the problem with this is that God constantly gives us things we cannot do. When he says, be holy for I am holy, or be perfect as I am perfect, or to love your brother uh, uh, to the point where you sacrifice yourself, 
and you put yourself in harm's way, or that you love God even with a perfect heart of love, with all your soul, mind, heart, and strength. These are things we're constantly called upon to do that are not within our capacity to do them, and yet thus we are, yet still we are responsible to, and obligated to obey those things. How could we be expected to do that? Well, God gives grace to obey. He gives help. And uh, he, he, makes the, he gives the ability. He, um, he makes the transformation in our nature and our character that gives us the power to be able to fill those things by his grace and by his spirit. They are his works wrought in us and through us so that we can accomplish those things. And so another thing, another word we want to kind of move on to do you have the word error there? Is error on your sheet? Okay. An error. Another sin word that gets used a lot, very frequently, is this word shagah or a mishka in Hebrew. Um, another common word is ta'ah. These words have an idea of to make an oversight or to make a mistake or to go astray. Uh, ta'ah means to vacillate or to go astray, to deceive or dissemble. Um, Greek word that would be translated with that as a corresponding or equivalent type of word often would mean to go astray or receive is this word planao in the Greek. One, um, it appears that both in the Old and New Testament they recognized error or even mistakes were sin. Um, that these were, even, though, even if there were clearly innocent errors, acts committed in ignorance for which no penalty or perhaps a small fine was assessed, that may happen from time to time, like such as the case with the cities of refuge. But in most cases, the Bible terms errors simply as um, things that persons should have known better, that they were responsible to inform themselves for, that these sins are no less heinous and deliberate and rebellious types of wrongdoing. The individual is still responsible for them, and therefore the penalty attaches to them. So it, to err, to go off, to deviate, to, have, to go astray. Um, scripture tells us that we are all like sheep who have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Uh, we've made error, moral error. Another word is this word iniquity. It's a fascinating word, this avon in Hebrew. And it has the idea of something bent over or crooked to have behavior or to have a life that is marked by this being bent out of shape. Um, this is what Scripture is talking about when it talks about our human nature, that our, our nature is not straight. It has been bent and has been made crooked. This is the main way biblical authors talk about God's response to human iniquity. It's that our lives have been bent out of shape. He often uses this common phrase that he's going to visit our iniquity upon us or visit the iniquity of such group people upon them. And basically what that implies is that God is going to let the people experience the consequences of their own crooked choices to bear their iniquity, to carry their own consequences. Um, so God offers to carry our avones, our iniquities, as well. And you see that often in Isaiah chapter 53. He bore our iniquities on the cross. And this is a common Hebrew way of speaking of forgiveness. To carry the avon, to carry the iniquities, the, the crooked consequences of your life, the crooked uh, nature of man, is God's single act to bring forgiveness and transformation to people. So avon is iniquity. It means something crooked or bent out of shape. Transgression is another word. Transgression is the 
has a couple words for transgression, translated transgression in your English Bible, but it has the idea of a broken trust. Now, this is important. Sin is relational. It's just completely, constantly has the overtones of a relationship throughout it. A transgression involves someone who's violated the trust of others. It's the relational impact, the collateral damage of sin, the breaking of an agreement in biblical Hebrew. Uh, The word pasha is the word in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, you don't pasha against somebody, you pasha with them. That is, you violate their confidence. You break trust with them. In Jacob and Laban's situation, in Genesis chapter 31, 36, after Jacob leaves with his wives, and uh, Laban discovers the family idols have been missing. He runs them down in the desert. He tears apart his whole entourage looking for these idols. And Jacob says to Laban, what is my Peshah? What is my transgression? What have I, what have I broken? What, viola- what trust have I violated? It comes at the end of a, many years of labor with Laban, and where a relationship of trust should have been cultivated. And yet Laban has great distrust. So... When we, when we sin, when we transgress, we break the promise, we break covenant, we break violation of relationship. This was the main message of Amos and Micah and all these, several other, all these other prophets where they would go to the people of Israel and say, you have transgressed, you've broken trust with God in the covenant promise, the covenant agreement you shared together. So sin is a stepping over of the boundary. That's another word here, the, ava, um, the avar word here. In Numbers chapter 14, it means to go beyond an established limit. So when we sin, we go beyond an established boundary. We cross over. We overstep the boundaries. And it's implied that it's an intentional stepping over of God's boundaries. And then, of course, we have the word sin. The plain general word sin gets rendered sin in a lot of different, for a lot of these Hebrew words. But primarily, it's this one. For over 300 occurrences, it's this word uh, hata or chata. It means moral failure, to, to miss the mark. It's actually used in this verse. Let's go to um, Judges chapter 20 real quickly, and I just want to look at this one with you. Judges chapter 20, where it's describing, it's used in a literal sense here in this passage. Judges twenty sixteen. it says, from, from the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin, these guys had special skills. The sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah, who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all of these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, and not miss, to not miss the mark. That's the idea here embedded in the idea of sin, this idea that we don't miss the mark, we don't come short, we don't... Um, that there's not a failure to attain a goal. So sin is a, is, is a failure to not love God or to love his fellow image bearers. It's, a, it's to miss the mark. It's to miss the goal. Sin against people and sin against God are both represented in the Ten Commandments, and we fall short of those Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments is all about how we honor God, or, and we fall short in those areas. We, the last half is all about our responsibilities towards men. And we fall short there as well. And we're self-deceived about this illusion that we have, that we can keep and hit the mark with, with perfect accuracy. Sin is not just a matter of behavior. It's in our nature. 
it's part of this, uh, this problem that we have uh, where we think that sin is not just acts. It's, it can't be solved by just behavior reformation. You actually need rescue from your own nature, which is problematic because the one to whom you need most rescue is yourself. Okay? And sin is relational. That's why David would cry out in Psalm 51, verse 4. He'd say, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Uh, he has broken trust with God, and he is aware that that's what sin is. Sin's not just missing the mark. It's falling short after doing your best. So this word um, hamartia is an inability type of word. It's, we, have lost, we, have no, we have tried our best. We've tried our hardest, and we still fall short. Just as in Romans chapter 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so, just wrapping up tonight with two things. Actually, I'm going to give you the definition here from a couple systematic theologies. And you're going to see how closely they are resembling each other because they're consolidating all this terminology, the concordance of sin language. They're putting it together and they're showing how this basically sums up what a basic definition of sin is. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude, and in nature. It's not just actions. It's your disposition and your, the, your, 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 nat, your, your makeup. The way your makeup is morally. Your nature is broken. Sin is an, any evil action. Sorry, sin in, is any evil action or evil motive that is in opposition to God. Simply stated, sin is a failure to let God be God. And you, instead of letting God be God, you place something or someone in God's rightful place of supremacy. It's a lack of conformity to the moral law. And lastly, I, I think this is really helpful too. Sin is a violation of the creature and creator relationship. We saw that especially in the word trespass here. Chata, or not chata, pasha, that's the word. Um, where we've broken trust. The most all-encompassing view of sin's mainspring, therefore, is the demand for autonomy, which is going to land us perfectly in place in Genesis chapter 3. What is the major reason why Eve sees the fruit and takes the fruit? Um, It's a desire to be able to be autonomous and independent, to be gods themselves without having to depend upon God in heaven. And so a desire for autonomy is at the root of our understanding of sin. Sin is the lack of conformity to God's will. All sin is autonomy. And its products, pride, selfishness, idolatry, and the lack of peace, um, are all the fruits as a result of that. So now that we have a kind of a working definition of sin, we need to go into Genesis chapter 3, where we talk about the origin of sin. And then we'll move quickly to Romans chapter 5, where we start to uncover the basic, the, 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 the hairier issues of why original sin is so critical, why it's so important, and uh, why Pastor Farrell has emphasized it so, so well for us for the last several weeks in Romans chapter 5. Again, I don't intend to say the same things he said. We try to summarize and th- synthesize some of this together so we can start making the connections for us. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll close up tonight. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to be in your word, to look at these, the subject. It's such a necessary one. Such a crucial one to help us understand, indeed, the necessity of our of our of our need of grace for the rescue of the gospel, the rescue of our Savior. Uh, Lord, the more we see our condition as being so hopeless and so um, 
deeply entrenched in who we are, we, we long even greater for a Savior. A spiritual, supernatural uh, recreation is needed. And the Savior from heaven is the only one who can remake us and transform us and take out this heart of flesh that is so overwhelmed with uh, sin tendencies and, and uh, corruption and pollution in its innermost being and give us a new heart with a new, make us new creatures to put away the old and make all things new. And so, Lord, we thank you for your, your work in that. We praise your name. Lord, we just pray that you help us as we continue to study this, help us to anchor these convictions deep into our heart from the scriptures and so that we will not be, um, that we'll not be tempted to lean upon our own self-improvement strategies or other ways in which we can try to negotiate around the sin problems of our life. We'll ask for your help in this, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.